You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hello, welcome to Inside Healthcare by NCQA. I'm Alec Bose, and I'm here with Mary Gilliberti, CEO of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And we're going to be talking about a lot of different topics today, including integrating behavioral health into a primary care setting, as well as mental health disparities in care amongst minorities during National Minority Mental Health Month. So with that, let's get straight to it. I remember you speaking at the Washington Post um, event, and I remember we were sort of, at that point, we had heard about the unfortunate suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. We sort of see today with these sort of unprecedented levels of depression and anxiety and all the other mental issues. Um, So would you classify that or what we're experiencing in the country as a mental health crisis. And um, when do you think that started, and how has it gotten so bad over the last few years, few decades? Well, I, I do think that we are in a period of a mental health crisis, and I think the increase in suicide is really quite alarming. The rates have increased substantially from 99 to 2016. In virtually every state, they've increased, and increased by you know, over 30% in, in a number of those states. So we're seeing large increases. If you think about the total, in 2016, we had 45,000 suicides, 123 per day. So just in the course of a day. So if you think about those kind of numbers, I, I don't think there's any question that that should be seen as a crisis. So then you say to yourself, well, if we're in a crisis, what are we doing about it? And the lack of urgency in all of mental health care, suicidality being one aspect of it, but the overall lack of urgency is a critical problem. And so when you think about suicide, there are things that we could do. 10% of suicides happen when someone is coming out of a facility, recently had come out of a facility. So you would think that facilities would have across the board careful standards around this, but that's not true. And yet the Suicide Action Alliance and others, there are standards that show that if you intervene when someone's in a facility, you ask them if they are considering suicide, you do a safety plan, you remove means, and you follow up after the discharge with a call within a day. So, you know, a lot of the standards say you follow up within seven days or 30 days. Well, for suicidality, it's a much shorter time period that that they need to hear from someone in order to prevent suicide. So there's things that we could be doing, and I would say that's true for suicidality, and it's true for many aspects of mental illness in terms of thinking about it quite urgently and taking steps to both enact standards, follow those standards, and incentivize and finance that care. So that follow-up is, is critical. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think are some of the, the factors? I mean, we, so we talked a little bit about suicide and more broadly on the point of uh, mental illness. Like, what are some factors that you think people may not think about when it comes to mental illness? Things like how it affects their job or how it may affect their family. I think people fail to recognize how common mental illnesses are and then also what are the right treatments for different mental illnesses? I think there's a, lot, a lack of really literacy in a sense of, you know, what do you do if you see someone who is struggling with a mental illness? Uh, in suicidality, people still have the belief that you shouldn't ask about it. 
That's not true. You absolutely should ask. If you have reason to believe that someone is um, at that point or might be, you absolutely should ask. But I think most people, if you ask them, would say, oh, that would put the idea in their head. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not true. It does not put the idea in anybody's head. But that's a misnomer, right? Something you don't know. And so there's lots of things about mental illness that I think we don't know, including that there are very effective treatments. You know, sometimes people see these as sort of character flaws, weaknesses, if you will. So they think, well, if they could just buck up, pull themselves up, you know, look on the bright side. I was the kind of person who did that. When I was in college, I had a college sweetmate who had depression, and I said to her, cheer up, look on the bright side. Well, that was absolutely and positively the worst thing you could say to someone who's struggling with depression, which is a very real illness. You wouldn't say to someone who, um, you know, is in a wheelchair and can't walk, walk. I mean, it's, it's not appropriate. And, um, you know, my dear friend died by suicide. And so, you know, for me, it's really important that people understand, going back to your original question, what don't we understand? Understand these are real conditions with effective treatments. So be kind, be compassionate when you come across someone who has these, and help them navigate to something that's likely to work for them. So you, you mentioned um, treatment in, in that um, answer that you said, and so one of the things that we've been talking a lot about, and we sort of wanted to focus on it a little bit more during this interview, is primary care and how mm -hmm. that impacts treatment of individuals with a mental illness. And so we talk a lot about that in terms of lowering costs and um, improving outcomes. Do you believe incorporating behavioral health and mental health services into primary care as a way to do that? Absolutely. It's very important to have behavioral health and primary care be integrated. Uh, and vice versa, it's important for primary care to be integrated into behavioral health care. So that cross bi-directional, if you will, integration is very, very important for improving outcomes. My friend Patrick Kennedy likes to say we need to have a checkup from the neck up. Um, and that means, you know, in primary care, we should be looking at the brain. It's on the top of the body for a reason. Um, so, you know, we need to be looking at the brain and thinking about whether someone is having any mental health conditions when they have physical health conditions and vice versa. People with serious mental illness who are in the behavioral health system need to get good primary care because they're not. Um, and so if we want to improve outcomes, we need to think about for everybody, how do we look holistically at improving their mental health and physical health? sort of bring up our NCQA, a behavioral health integration distinction, and that rewards what you're talking about. And you, we say that we want to incorporate primary care into behavioral health and that will improve outcomes. How specifically, in what ways would you see going to the doctor and including that as part of your checkup as improving outcomes? There may be some obvious reasons, but can you speak to those? Sure. And I just want to say I'm glad that NCQA is doing that. I think it's really important to reward and incentivize. And in mental health, we don't see much of that. Rewarding and incentivizing good quality care, good practices. So I think that that is a very good example. In terms of why it makes a difference, just like in physical health care, if you catch something early, it will it be easier to treat. So if you catch anxiety, depression, even psychosis, actually, probably specifically psychosis, if you can catch that early, you can have tremendously better outcomes for people. So it is very important that you catch that in primary care. We've seen some really good examples where primary care is actually providing some uh, mental health care, some psychotherapies at a, um, for people, and then also has to have 
a way to refer people to higher levels of care, where preferably warm handoffs where people really get into that care. And this is particularly important for underserved populations coming into primary care, coming into school-based mental health clinics. These kinds of settings are more likely to be acceptable, be a place that people feel comfortable getting their care. Mary, I'm actually really glad you hit on that point because my next question actually has to do with a Minority Mental mm -hmm. Health Month. One of the big issues we talk about in healthcare, and you sort of talked about the underserved populations in your previous answer, and we're talking about reducing disparities uh, among certain demographics. And what are some ways, um, maybe not just primary care, we, we obviously believe that primary care can help reduce these disparities as well, but in, in addition to that, what are some other things that we can do to reduce those disparities among underserved populations? So there's a couple of factors, I think, that contributes to the disparities. One is stigma, negative attitudes toward these conditions. Um, for many underserved populations, they feel negative attitudes coming in lots of directions to them. And so the idea that they would also work toward their mental health care is um, difficult. So they may feel like they would be, um, because of what I talked about earlier, people sometimes look at these as weaknesses, as character flaws. And so there's a real worry about coming forward and asking for help that they would be seen as weak or as this being um, something that they caused, for example. And so, you know, NAMI partners with several organizations, Alpha Kappa Alpha, which is the nation's oldest African-American um, sorority group, and, you know, they have talked extensively with me about this issue of stigma in the community and people not wanting to come forward and working uh, against that. And they've joined us to do that because they feel really strongly that this is really important. These are real health care conditions and that people need to get that help. So how do we get out there? And so we've been doing health fairs together. We've been trying to really raise awareness that these are health care conditions and people need to treat them the same way they do diabetes or other kinds of conditions and get the help they need as early as possible. So stigma is one error. The other is just the lack of providers that uh, look like people from communities of color, um, have cultural competence, have cultural specific treatments, those are all lacking. And so I think really doing more to have providers from communities of color and then also to teach providers how to be culturally competent um, is really important for mental health care going forward. Um, you mentioned the Alpha Kappa Alpha. I just wanted to put a note in there for my mom. She was <laughs> she's, she's, a, she's a sister of Alpha okay. Kappa Alpha. Sorry, so she would kill me if I didn't mention that. In there. <laughs> um, so, so I uh, sort of switching gears just a second back to um, the treatments. I remember during your Washington Post event, you um, mentioned the need for new innovative practices in the field. And are there any currently in development that we can? We're talking a lot about primary care during this interview, but are there any? innovative treatments that are in development right now that are yet to be seen or are not mainstream yet that have caught your eye or are on your radar that we may not know about? So I think there's there's two categories. There's treatments that are out there that aren't well distributed, so it's hard for people to access them. And then there's the idea of research and discovery, mm -hmm. right, which we still need to do more. So let me address those in turn. So the first is sort of treatments that are out there that people aren't really getting access to and the need that they have. So one example might be uh, coordinated specialty care. It's kind of a mouthful for early episode psychosis. So people who are really early in their illness but are beginning to experience psychotic thoughts. We, um, NIMH, did some research on a bundle, a package of services, including psychotherapy, medication management, 
help with education and employment, family support. They packaged everything we know that's effective together. And the researchers found it had better outcomes. It's now starting to spread across the country, but not as quickly, not as well financed as it needs to be. But the outcomes are very substantial. So an example, the New York program saw people go from 40% employed. These are young people from like 18 to 30. 40% employed to 80% employed. 70% experiencing readmission to hospitals to 10%. Those are some big numbers. So if we can get this spread throughout the country, we can make a difference for people with some of the most serious illnesses you could have as a young person. Um, we also are seeing cognitive behavioral therapies. So cognitive behavioral therapy is, means you kind of change the way you think about things. And that can be used for depression. There's a version of it that's used for suicidality and a version for psychosis. Very hard to find that, very hard to get it many times, but it is quite effective in helping address the underlying conditions. So we have treatments that work, but we've had a very hard time because most providers aren't trained on these treatments in the mental health space. They're not incentivized and they're not financed well. In terms of research and getting newer and better treatments, um, mental health is really lagging behind. Um, it's been decades since we've seen something radically new in the treatment for mental illness. There are a few things that people are looking at um, and uh, you know, there's some new research on genetics um, particularly with respect to schizophrenia, some in depression. So there's some interesting and exciting things happening in genetics, but we still need what we call, you know, a biomarker. Something that tells you that you have mental illness. And so, you know, when people talk about the cancer moonshot, you know, really wanting yeah. to get to the moon with cancer, yeah. I tell people that in mental health, we need a Mars shot. We need to go somewhere we've never been before which is really trying to figure out this incredibly complex part of the body, the brain, you know, which is much more difficult in many ways to research than other parts of the body. Because there's, the, you know, your body basically protects your brain with barriers to getting to your brain. So being able to, and you can't really just slice it open and look at it, right? So, um, so there are, there are some real barriers there that um, you know, researchers are working to overcome, but we feel that the urgency that you see in cancer and HIV, we need to have the same urgency toward mental health care because these also are illnesses that cause tremendous disability and mortality. I did want to touch one more time on the, um, on the primary care aspect, the primary care setting. You know, we believe that sort of just makes sense. You, you said, you know, check up from the neck up. It, we get checkups all the time. Why not do that with our um, mental health? And what can we do to see these efforts as the norm rather than just the exception? I mean, I agree with you that many of the good practices that we see in mental health care are not getting spread to the extent that we want them to. We think that a couple things could be helpful. One is having a more clear articulation of standards of care for primary care and mental health care where it's clear that this is the standard of care. This is what you do. In the same way you would not go to a physical and not get blood pressure, you shouldn't go to a physical and not get your mental health check as well. You know, making it really the standard of care and then financing. Um, you know, it is very difficult many times to finance the mental health piece of whatever it is you're doing. So if you're in primary care, how do you finance that psychotherapy that you might be 
providing? How do you finance the time it takes to link up with behavioral health care providers and make sure that is a warm handoff and a handoff back again for you to do that primary care? Many, many times that coordination is not financed. So looking at how do we finance things so we incentivize good outcomes instead of little pieces that people do is really important um, and incentivizing good practice I think for mental health care is critical and we're not seeing it so both I think it's a combination of standards and financing and linking those together um, for better outcomes. On that same point I think we're we are having a bigger conversation about it maybe not in terms of um, behavioral health in a primary care setting but we are definitely talking about it a lot more on a sort of a national scale. I do think there is a chance to capitalize on this. So how do you think we can capitalize on the sort of larger conversation that's sort of going on right now, now that more people seem to be discussing it or at least aware of it in some ways? And how can we turn that into a national conversation about public policy? Um, because I think that is ultimately where the change will come. Yeah, I agree. And I think it goes back to some of the things that we've been talking about, which is if you look at the suicidality and you look at what's happening in uh, opioid addiction, for example, we haven't talked about that, but dual diagnosis treatment, there's a high percentage of people that have mental health and addiction. And yet our service system doesn't provide integrated treatment. In fact, it usually asks you to choose. And it's sort of absurd. It's like, you know, how do you ask somebody to choose between different parts of themselves? Um, so I think if you add all that up, and you look at some of our cities too, the homelessness population, that you cannot walk in San Francisco or Seattle without being confronted with it. So serious mental illness is something we're all seeing as well. That, I think, is sort of the perfect storm for us to start talking at a higher level about how are we going to change public policy to address the brain the same way we do the rest of the body. So I think if you look at all of these things happening together, the opioid crisis, the suicide rates rising rapidly, and serious mental illness being neglected. There really is, you know, lots of reasons for the healthcare system to start to pay attention. And I think the fragmentation has really hurt us because the homelessness system is different, the criminal justice system. We haven't talked about how many people are in the criminal justice system with mental illness. You know, we talk about 10, 10, 10. There's about 10 million people with mental illness. They're dying 10 years earlier, and they're 10 times more likely to be in jail than in a psych hospital. So if you look at those systems, so somebody goes to jail, the healthcare system isn't paying anymore. The criminal justice system is paying. Homelessness, the homelessness system is paying. The mental health system, the healthcare system's not paying anymore. So that fragmentation is really hurt in sort of thinking through addressing this from a public policy perspective. But I think we are getting to the point where people are starting to really recognize that we've got to do something different because the outcomes we're getting as a country are really terrible. I mean, when you look at addiction, suicide, and serious mental illness on any of those, our outcomes are truly abysmal. And so what we're doing isn't working. So it's hard to see how it could be much worse. So, you know, we've got to start trying new things. We've got to start trying incentivizing good care, putting the money. We have this, uh, certified community behavioral health clinics. It's a brand new thing. Um, we have pilots in eight states. They actually get paid first on, on cost. 
like like FQHCs, federally qualified health mm -hmm. centers, get paid. These get paid the same way. So you get your money. Um, you don't you don't have the same problems in financing that you do currently with other mental health centers. They're hiring more psychologists. They're hiring more psychiatrists. They're giving better care. They're being held to outcome standards for that money. That's what we need to be doing. And we don't need it as pilots anymore. We kind of need a system to do this. So thank you, Mary, for being a part of this podcast. We really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate NCQA really uh, working in this area, incentivizing people, rewarding them for doing work in this area. And I look forward to continuing to work with you on these really important issues. Absolutely.